0: This is Mouth Media Network. Amplify and connect. On One Woman Kitchen, we explore the vital notion that food has deep historic and emotional resonance. And no one understands this better than Dara Goldstein, award-winning author, culinary scholar, Russian literature professor and founding editor of one of the food world's most noteworthy magazines, Gastronomica, the Journal of Food and Culture. We celebrate together the publication of Dara's newest book, Beyond the North Wind, Russia in Recipes and Lore, and share her remarkable journey to the far northern corners of Russia, to a land of culinary riches and extraordinary history. Coming up, you'll hear how rugula and cabbage rolls inspired an unimagined career path, how geography and history shape a country's culinary traditions, how food can be a tool of peace building, and how often do we get to talk about horseradish vodka, 20-minute pickles, and see buckthorn berries, the color of the sun. Get ready to gobble up Dara's gorgeous global story. In the vast culinary landscape we share, we are all carving out a place for ourselves. Each of us, in our own way, is a one woman kitchen. I'm Roseanne Gold, and welcome to my kitchen. Dara Goldstein, it is such a thrill to have you here today. It would be under any circumstance. But especially so right now is because you have a new gorgeous cookbook out called Beyond the North Wind, Russia in Recipes and Lore. And you've written many cookbooks. You are an award-winning cookbook author, a food and culinary scholar. You're a professor. Um, you are one of the coolest magazine editors who ever lived because you created a astonishing food magazine called Gastronomica, and I understand you have created yet another magazine called Cured, So we have a lot to talk about. Welcome. You have taken a deep dive into all things Russian for the last fifty years. It will be exciting to hear everything you have to say about Russia, but I do need a little bit of educating before we get started on your amazing career path. Tell us about Russia versus the Soviet Union. So when we even talk about Russia, what are we really talking about? It's funny because I didn't go to Russia
1: itself until 1993. Before that, I had always been going to the Soviet Union So, in terms of location, it is the same place, although with some changes. But it was Russia until 1917. And then there was the Russian Revolution. And after the revolution, it became the Soviet Union, which is much more of a political entity. It was still Russia, but it was Soviet Russia. And then in 1991, Uh, Soviet Union collapsed, and it became Russia, the Russian Federation again. And all of the republics, which were independent countries that came under the Soviet thrall during the Soviet period, became independent again. So now it is really just the Russian Federation, but that Russian Federation stretches from the Baltic Sea to the Pacific. So it's a huge landmass that straddles two continents, as a matter of fact, Europe and Asia.
0: I am so glad I asked, <laughs> and now I want to know how this all got started for you, uh, and how one even conquers uh, understanding a cuisine of a landmass that covers two continents and is so vast.
1: Well, this book is focused on on one particular part of it, so I didn't embrace the entire country. But you have I in the past in with, your, first, with your yeah, other books, yeah. Book. Um, I think it it began with a question for me because my mother's parents, I hadn't met my grandfather. He died before I was born, but my grandmother used to stay with us when I was little. And she was from Belarus, which uh, is kind of like Russia. And a Russian Jew who left at the beginning of the 20th century because life was so hard. And she would never say anything about it. So I had a curiosity. And when I started college, I had studied a number of languages, and I thought, I'll study Russian. It's a different language group, and I'm very curious about this place that no one would tell me about. And I fell in love with the literature. It was just so astonishing and so rich and so deep. And the language was a struggle, I have to say. It's quite complex in terms of its grammar. But the, I persevered, the yes. yes. It, it has six different cases and lots of different endings and very difficult verb forms, but it's quite beautiful and extraordinarily rich in its emotional vocabulary, mm. and that was
0: important to me. And Especially I, because no one was talking to you in your childhood. Yeah. As a matter of fact, to actually backtrack a little bit, because you brought up the word emotion, did you have a sense that there was a very dark story behind the fact that your grandmother wasn't talking about what happened to her in her childhood?
1: Oh, yes. The only thing she had told me, or maybe my mother had told me, and now I no longer remember— was that um, when she came to this country, she worked as a seamstress. She actually was working for Lord and & Taylor, and she was extraordinary in her ability to turn a scrap into a gown. Mm. And I, of course, can't sew worth a, <laughs> a <laughs> darn, but I can cook. Yes. Um, but the only thing I remember is that starting at the age of five, she had to pick up pins from the floor. And I don't know how... Many hours a day, she picked up pins. But it was something about the sharpness of the pins, the floor. I pictured a dark hovel, and I sensed that it wasn't a joyous life. So, yes, and there was darkness, and that's also part of what appealed to me in Russian literature and also going to Russia-slash-Soviet Union itself this dark undercurrent that made the joyous moments all the more resonant. This was 1978? Well, I started graduate school in 1974. And because I loved food and loved to cook and loved Russian literature, I decided that I wanted to write my Ph.D. dissertation on food and Russian literature. It was a no-brainer for me. But had it ever been done before? Had anyone no. really tackled this? no. I mean, you could read about what certain characters ate, but no one had done it in an analytical way. And to me, it uh, told me so much about the characters, about who they were, what their proclivities were. uh, And you learn a lot about the culinary culture. And my professors, this was at Stanford, were not enthralled with the idea (laughs) to say the least, and basically told me I was not a serious person Mm. and could not
0: pursue that. It's shocking to think about that, Dara, right? That food really, (sighs) once upon a time, was considered something that was really pretty lowly. And not only wouldn't you study it or write about it. But once upon a time in households, I think all over the world, people wouldn't even talk about it. It was considered kind of déclasse. Déclasse and,
1: and trivial. Yeah. And part of the problem is, at least in academia, a lot of what goes on is trying to make things inaccessible because that makes it seem more cerebral. <laughs> and the more people you can keep out, then the smarter you seem. <laughs> I'm retired now, so I can say this with equanimity. Right.
0: Because you have been a professor
1: for decades. 34 years. 34 years, yeah.
0: At Williams College? Yes, yeah. and
1: loved it. But I also recognize aspects of academia that I think are problematic. Um, Because everyone eats, it's not something that you can claim as your platform, perhaps, or at least people felt that then. And I'm not sorry that they told me that in retrospect, because I ended up writing my dissertation on an amazing Russian modernist poet. I immersed myself in the Russian language in literature, and it was quite beautiful. But I couldn't stop thinking about the food and characterizations. And so my very first cookbook, which was published in 1983, was a Russian cookbook. Which was uh, maybe my way of thumbing my nose at my professors saying, (laughs) see, you can do something smart with food and something meaningful and something that embraces the sensual and doesn't keep it at bay because food is very sensual and that had to be part of it too. And that book is still in print. And what is the name of that book, Uh, The book now is called A Taste of Russia, um, its original title was Alarus mm. in the Russian style, a cookbook of Russian hospitality.
0: I love that. I do too. I kind of wish that was the name of it now. <laughs> I do too, but when it went into a
1: paper edition, they felt that the French name was too esoteric. And, uh, and they are and probably right. Yeah, mm-hmm.
0: perhaps. And you have other books too about Russian cuisine. Uh, I have a. A book about Georgian ah, cuisine, okay. which
1: is the Georgian feast, but that has nothing to do with Russia. It It's an even more ancient culture. The palate is completely different. It's more like a cross between Middle Eastern and Mediterranean. Mm. Uh, it, it is very far from Russia. And I mean, funny even though it's contiguous with it in terms of
0: political boundaries. Fascinating, because I always thought that the... Um Georgian cuisine was part of the Republic of Georgia, which was part of the Soviet Union. And I know in uh, Brighton Beach, little Odessa by the sea, many of the restaurants serve what I thought was Georgian cuisine. They do. This is so complex. I'm so glad you're here to help us straighten this out. They (laughs) do serve it because um,
1: many of the Georgian dishes, for instance, the khachapuri, the cheese bread that is everyone's Instagram star now. Uh, Chicken tabaka, which is a flattened chicken. Butterfly chicken. Yeah. Um, Eggplant caviar. Lobio, which is a bean dish. All of those are part of the uh, Russian cuisine writ large. Mm. And so, yes, you'll find all of them there, but it's not um, historically Russian. It's
0: so fascinating. I've never been there. It is a cuisine that I really love, and I do know what Lobio is. It's a kidney bean, red kidney bean salad done with ground walnuts, pomegranate molasses, and cilantro. Am I right?
1: You have it absolutely (laughs) right.
0: It's very delicious. We have so much to talk about, Dara. I do want to specifically mention something again about the book and ask you about the title. So it's called Beyond the North Wind. What, why this beautiful, poetic, romantic title? Well, you know I love poetry. But what really uh,
1: brought the, the title to me – so I was thinking, what can I say about Russian cuisine now? I've already written a book that was a long time ago. And that book focused on Soviet food, but also looking back at the 19th century of haute cuisine, all of these dishes that had this very strong French overlay. And lately, I've been thinking about what is Russian, what is elemental, to get really to the heart of Russian cuisine. So I was doing a lot of reading. And in my reading, and I don't remember exactly where, but I discovered that the ancient Greeks believed in a utopia that was far, far away, where the sun always shone. There were beautiful people there, very tall and blonde <laughs> um, Happiness. People lived for many hundreds of years. Apollo, the sun god, went to spend the winters there because it was so beautiful and temperate. And uh, Pliny the Elder writes about it. Herodotus, the geographer, the historian, writes about it. And in the 1960s, I think, some Soviet uh, geographers decided to try and pinpoint where this hyperborea was, because Mm. the name of this utopia was Hyperborea, which translates as beyond the north wind. And they pinpointed (laughs) it on, you know, you go across this river, and then you cross the Carpathian Mountains, and then you turn right, and then you Mm. do whatever. They pinpointed it on the Kola Peninsula, which is in the far northwest of Russia, If you can picture Norway that kind of comes across and meets Russia at the very top, at the Barents Sea, then uh, there's a peninsula that comes down and it's called Kola. And suddenly um, my heart just started pounding because I felt like this had to be the place where it all happened. Hyperborea was posited as the place where it was the birthplace of technology and innovation. And a lot of the Russian sagas had these descriptions of towers where they had captured the sun and the stars and the moon. And it seemed like perhaps that was early astronomy. And then I started thinking about the etymology of the word kola. And it's very similar to an ancient Slavic root, which means circle. And that related to the sun. And I just started getting very excited and decided that's where I had to go to find the (laughs) elemental Russian cuisine (laughs) north of the Arctic Circle.
0: This is extraordinary. So
1: my husband, who's game to travel with me and is a wonderful, wonderful companion and observer. And he's a professor as well, Retired, but yes. of uh, uh, Literature? Literature, English. What a couple yeah. you are. <laughs> <laughs> so we decided to go to the Kola Peninsula. And the thing that was astonishing was that my hunch proved right. Because uh, there hadn't been a lot of external influence on the food there. Uh, there was no big city like. Leningrad, St. Petersburg, or Moscow. There is the city of Murmansk there, but that wasn't founded until 1915 or 1916. There's an older city of Arkhangelsk, Archangel, that's on the White Sea, which is quite old, but it's a provincial city. And so the food waste didn't have a lot of foreign influence. And Most importantly, the Mongols had never made their incursions that far to the north and the west. So there hadn't been the same exchange that had gone on further to the south in the more familiar part of Russia. And I was able to trace a lot of the dishes that I tasted in some of these small villages back to the medieval period in Russia, based on manuscripts I had looked at, <laughs> so it was absolutely thrilling to me to have that corroboration and to taste what I felt was the real essence of uh you know the Russian land and the Russian palate.
0: Extraordinary. Has anyone ever gone there and done this kind of intensive research about this particular? area or food or not really i mean there have been um
1: a few accounts in russian of people who've gone and certain things they've tasted but there isn't a book that i know of about the russian north But I tried to extrapolate. Um, I don't want people to think that you have to live in the extreme north to find (laughs) or eat these foods. Well,
0: I've looked at some of the recipes and they do seem (laughs) very doable with ingredients we really have and things we've heard of and things we really want to eat. It's quite accessible. It's just a, a different way of thinking. It, I'm curious, though, the way you describe what the people would look like this, in this utopia, uh, that they were, you know, really tall and, and blonde. So to me, that almost feels more Nordic. But I happen to know you have a specialty in that as well, because you wrote another gorgeous award-winning book called Fire and Ice, which was really about a, a related but different group of people in a different cuisine.
1: Yeah, So, but actually, you're right. It was the Vikings, because the Vikings— uh, didn't just go to England or to Canada. They also went to Russia and then south to Constantinople. So the beautiful, tall, blonde people were Vikings uh, even
0: before the Russian nation was established. Just so everyone knows how accessible this book really is, I just want to read a quote by one of my favorite writers. Her name is Anya von Bremsen. and I think she just summarized this beautiful book so well. She says, Anya, about your book, Dara, in this beautifully written, gorgeously photographed volume, Dara Goldstein captures both the archaic soul of old Russia and the hip new global zeitgeist. Her love letter to the mysterious Russian North brims with revelations from recipes I can't wait to make. Dandelion blossom syrup, pumpkin pancakes, to intimate portraits of cooks, erudite historical essays, and insightful travel notes. Part recipe collection, part cultural anthropology, part poetic evocation of place. This is the best kind of cookbook, one that conjures an entire culture at the table. Wow. (laughs) Wow is right. That's so generous. So when we come back, though, Dara, we'll want to hear about your childhood kitchen and what you ate and what you remember and some of your most vivid uh, memories. Okay. Here's a cooking tip to share. This one from my guest, Dara Goldstein. There um, is one ingredient
1: that really captures the taste of the North for me that I happen to be obsessed with, oh, and that you do have to mail order or else go to Canada, <laughs> and that's sea buckthorn. I just which, saw that on
0: a menu recently. Yeah, a it's new, become trendy very thing? trendy, okay. uh, particularly
1: <laughs> with cocktails. There'll be some sea buckthorn puree, or they might add some puree to uh, an ice cream cocktail, another kind of cocktail. But what the Russians do is uh, they puree the berries and they make a beautiful, beautiful juice out of it. And then you thicken the juice with a little bit of potato starch, or you could use cornstarch if you don't have the potato. And uh, you add some sugar to it, or you could add honey because it is quite sour. And it's so full of vitamin C and carotenoids that it's just, and it's, bright yellow to a, a very deep gold. There's a picture close to the front of the book of this buckthorn juice. And to me, it's sunshine in the winter, and I really love it. So I mail order the frozen berries from a place in Oregon,
0: and uh, you can keep them in the freezer and they won't go bad. From Dara's kitchen to yours, give it a try and pass it along. Dara, clearly food is such a huge part of who you are, what you think about, really informed you. But tell me about your childhood kitchen. Where did you grow up? Who was there? What were you eating? What were some of your most vivid food memories? I grew up in Pittsburgh, a Jewish family.
1: Uh, One of my earliest memories was this grandmother I mentioned earlier who had been a seamstress and she was also a wonderful baker and I responded to the baking part of her expertise and not the needle part <laughs> uh, and she would come and visit she didn't live with us but I still remember the rugelach she made so these uh, rolled pastry cookies that uh, she had with uh, raspberry jam and cinnamon, Mm. and just the smell of those. She didn't roll them individually. Mm. She made like a sheet of rugelach, which is a more streamlined way to do them and then cut them into bars. Uh, That's one of my earliest memories of food and smell and love and warmth and kitchen. My mother was a wonderful, wonderful cook. Uh, She did kind of classic Jewish cooking, mm-hmm. Ashkenazi cooking. She was always entering recipe contests without testing the recipes. <laughs> she just was very creative and the the best or the worst one, I'm not sure which it is, but it was for uh, King Oscar Sardines my senior year of high school. She sent off a recipe for a sardine dip with cream cheese, That sounded pretty disgusting to me. She won first prize. And the prize was a beautiful, beautiful pewter bowl, hand-hammered with Viking ships on it, which I still have. Oh, my. And 100 cans of King Oscar sardines. So I went off to college, and everyone else was getting care packages with brownies and chocolate chip cookies, and I was getting sardines. (laughs) And honestly... Unless they're fresh sardines, I have trouble with uh, sardines, even though I once loved them.
0: I just had a few too many. There is something kind of prophetic about this. (laughs) It's really funny. I was going to ask you about your grandmother's rugelach. I'm wondering if she made... Her dough with cream cheese, and that's why your mother thought to do this
1: with this. I don't know. I mean, I actually researched Ruglach very deeply a few years ago ah. because I was asked to give a presentation at There's this organization for Jewish learning called Limud that is uh, all over the world. And the branch in Helsinki asked me to come and speak about Ruglach. So I had to do a deep dive into it and Ah. discovered that it was not made with cream cheese until late 1940s, early 1950s, and it was all a a Philadelphia cream cheese marketing campaign, and they had (laughs) a recipe for it with cream cheese, and
0: that's when it first took off. Dara, that's a riot. It's just amazing. (laughs) In fact, so much of what we eat and the recipes that we think are part of Americana or whatever culture really are devised by food companies. Yes. and That's really true.
1: This has history going back to the old country, but it it was made more with a, uh, you know, more of a pastry dough without
0: the cream cheese. Uh, was it a yeast dough of any kind, or maybe even possibly in made, the past, it was a it yeast was, dough. It started yeah. out that way. Oh, that's so so <laughs> interesting. So that's a very vivid uh, memory for you, and the smell of butter, uh, raspberry, the kitchen for you was a place of joy and family and ritual and holiday and but I have a feeling when you thought about your career, you probably didn't think it was going to be anything about food at all.
1: Oh, not at all. What what were you destined to do at the time? Well I was a hippie. I just wanted to stay in California and read poetry. And I had when I had studied at the University of Helsinki, I learned to weave and I was very Interested in weaving, so I was just going to read poetry and weave and be barefoot with long flowing hair in
0: California. Who did you have in mind? Was did you have kind of a hero <laughs> or a role model? Was it? Oh, I I should have, but this was your this was your journey. This was your image of yourself. <laughs> yes, you mentioned um, really taking a deep dive into a Russian poet. And your thesis was about his work? Yes. Who
1: was it? His name is Nikolai Zabolotsky, and he was really the last Russian futurist. He was put into the labor camps. Um, Part of what—and this is what is so beautiful about my life, I think. When I went to the Soviet Union to research his work in the archives, I knew that he had spent time in Georgia— which was then the Soviet Republic of Georgia <laughs> that we were talking about earlier. Um, he had been a translator of Georgian poetry, not because he knew Georgian, but line by line translations, and then he turned it into beautiful Russian verse. And because I was a very good, assiduous researcher, I needed to go to Georgia to see what the impetus was for his poetry and also because he actually got out of the labor camps after eight years, totally broken. He didn't live that much longer, but he wasn't allowed to live in Moscow. So he went to Tbilisi, which is the capital of Georgia. It turns out this was in the late 70s. There were still people who had known him. So I was able to do on the ground interviews with them and really find out about him. But I went to Georgia, and I tasted the food, and I never looked back, Roseanne. I was so blown away by this extraordinary cuisine that was so different from anything I'd ever tasted Mm. that I decided I needed to write another cookbook, and that became my (laughs) second one, The Georgian (laughs) Feast. And then I was immersed in food, and the cookbooks followed, but because I was— As my career, a professor, I wanted to wed that uh, really, as I said, sensual, the practical aspect of my life that was so important to me, making food and sharing with it, sharing it with others and uh, communicating with people through food, but also doing what is considered more intellectual work, even though I find the writing cookbooks is highly intellectual.
0: Well, yours certainly are with the most dreamy, delicious (laughs) recipes, and um, I will definitely want to hear, we all will, what some of your favorite recipes in this particular book are. Dara, but that really leads us right to the question of how you created Gastronomica, which was considered maybe the first, definitely the best, magazine that mesh to use your word, uh, or the intersection of food and culture. Mm-hmm. How does one start a magazine?
1: Well, I just I I needed to save my soul. <laughs> mm. Basically, I had these two lives: I was the professor, and then I was the food writer, and both were very rich lives. But they and you were a disparate. wife and a mother too. Yes, right. Okay, too. all of these, and things. that was all. That was extremely important. But I wanted to bring everything together, and I think the catalyst was I published an article in the mid-'90s, this enormous discovery I had made about, do you know the great 19th-century French chef, Carême? Oh, of course. So he had created these pièces montées, which are sculptures out of uh, sugar paste or marzipan or a very uh, stiff dough that decorated the table. And it turns out that he had also cooked for Tsar Alexander I during the Napoleonic Wars, and he was invited to go to Russia. So I thought, oh, karem, food, uh, pièce Monte, art, Russia, I have to look into this. And it turned out that he got to Russia, the Tsar was not at the dock to meet the great French chef. And he was so offended that he decided to go back to France. But the next boat wasn't leaving for 10 days. So he wandered around this extraordinary city of St. Petersburg, which is gorgeous, but he felt it wasn't vertical enough for an empire. Um, He didn't know it was built on a swamp. There was a reason that the buildings were not (laughs) phallic, shall I say. So he made all these sketches for monuments for St. Petersburg, and I found his original drawings, compared them to the Piesse Monte. It was some of the most exciting research I ever did. I published the article in the Slavonic and East European (laughs) Review or Journal, I can't remember, out of London, and I swear, five people read it and they weren't the people who would have been so excited. And I thought there must be other people like me who are writing these amazing about these amazing discoveries and they don't have a place to share it or to talk with other people. And that's when it occurred to me that I had to create
0: that place. So from this extraordinary magazine, I believe it led you to... Another field that has actually a name now called cultural diplomacy, that you see food as a tool of uh, peace building and and, uh, bringing people together literally at the table. Tell me a little bit about that.
1: Yes, I have to preface that with a statement that um, there's a certain way in which all of my beautiful ideas about the way food can bring people together are utopian. It can happen on individual levels, but in order for there really to be peace, you have to have governments behind it. You can have a lot of grassroots activism. You can have people working together to mitigate the terrible things that are going on um, on the political level. But until there is a, a... A sea change, or maybe that's a bad metaphor these days, Um, until there's profound change at the political level, uh, food will not save the world in terms of getting people to talk to each other. That said, in small ways, it's really important. If you think about the English word companion, so where does it come from? it means uh, the Latin root is with bread. Mm. And once you have broken bread with someone, you become, you have shared something very deep. And so you're not just people standing next to each other, you are companions, you, you have a bond. If you think about the more abstract word commensality, which we don't really use in everyday language, but that also is Latin Co together, and Mensa means table. So it's coming together around the table. And in many cultures, Arabic, I think, um, primarily, once you have eaten with someone, that person can no longer be your enemy. You have shared something very profound. So I was involved with the Council of Europe for a while working on a project to... um, promote ways to use food as a tool for tolerance and diversity. And it was a wonderful undertaking. It was a small international team, and we really felt that we had come together. But then when I tried to make things happen on the ground, and this was in Israel, working with a young Druze sociologist and we, because he was a sociologist, he set up all kinds of um, data quantifiable ways of uh, assessing what happened when you bring people together, and then is there any lasting effect? And we had these beautiful gatherings, usually with women and children, because they're open to that kind of discussion and that kind of exploration. But then it couldn't move beyond that. Mm. So uh, I think throughout the world, there are a lot of people using food as this way of bridging difference. But food also, as you know, creates difference. I mean, it's this amazing medium because, uh, you know, that uh, over quoted quote, uh, tell me what you eat and I'll tell you who you are. Um, but it can also be turned against you. You don't eat that. You're strange. Or you eat frog's legs. That's why the French were called frogs. Um, I didn't know that. Grits, you know, Mm -hmm. as a derogatory term for people in the South. Beautiful, beautiful grits, one of my favorite foods. But kraut, you know, the Germans, there are so many of these terms that... um, Define otherness in terms of what we ingest, and they can be used in loving ways or else in really
0: negative ways. Let's not give up on your gorgeous hope and dream and the work you've already done in this in this arena. Really, Dara, I think that's so fantastic. When we come back, we're going to hear about some of the delicious recipes in your book, your legacy recipe and what's meaningful to you now. If you're wondering about my beautiful theme music, it's called The Garden, written and performed by award-winning singer-songwriter Audrey Appleby. Follow me on Instagram at Roseanne Gold, and check out everything I'm up to on my website at roseannegold.com. Dara, I know I described you wearing many hats at the beginning of the show. I'm a little curious how you think of yourself right now and how you would ID yourself. Oh, dear.
1: (laughs) Getting to the core of my identity, I'm still working on that, Roseanne. I have so many interests, and I feel as though I don't want to have one set identity because that might lock me into something that would keep me from seeing something else that might be out there. So I know it sounds as though I'm evading the question. Not at all. (laughs) But um, I'm a food writer. I'm a lapsed professor. (laughs) But neither of those um, really says who I am in my heart.
0: Mm. Um, I'm not sure. I think you're sharing the idea of Possibility, and when you're curious and interested, you can. And I think women are really very good at this, um, in process of reshaping, growing, stretching, and seeing what's out there in the world and wanting to make a difference. Dara, tell me about some of your favorite recipes in Beyond the North Wind. There
1: are so many good recipes in here. One of the glories of the Russian kitchen is pies. And when we think of pies in America, we tend to think of sweet. And there are certainly sweet pies in Russia, but they're the best pies are savory. And they make them in so many different sizes and shapes and different kinds of dough. And one of my absolute favorites in the book is called Kulibyaka. It has been a appropriated, shall I say, <laughs> or adapted into French cuisine in the 19th century as couloubiac, something very refined with puff pastry or sometimes you see with brioche. But the one that I have in the book has a very tender rye dough. And inside the classic, couloubiac is uh, elongated, so it's sort of a long oval. It has many, many layers. And the the really traditional one. You put a layer of blini, which are
0: pancakes. Inside the dough?
1: Yes, so that the dough doesn't get soggy. Mm -hmm. And then you have a layer of uh, cooked buckwheat groats, or you can use rice. In the past, they used viziga which is the dried backbone of sturgeon, which is not available any longer, but that helped everything to bind a bit. You have a layer of mushrooms that I'm starting to salivate. I'm sorry. Me too. Mushrooms <laughs> that are uh, sautéed in butter with uh, onions and dill, and you have those layers. And then you have a layer of salmon, and it would have been sturgeon, but I tend to use halibut. And then you reverse those layers and you wrap it all up in the dough and you bake it. And at the end, you cut a hole in the top and you pour in a little bit of of fish broth or butter just to make sure it's not dry. And you slice it and you see these beautiful layers. So I have a very simplified one in here. (laughs) The one that I had in my first cookbook took me an entire day to make because I was very into Showing that I could do things in the authentic way, whatever authentic means. This is equally authentic. It's just the way I cook now is much
0: more simple. And you, well, obviously, you do feel that uh, every home cook could make that, and it was part of the goal of your book to, yes, share these flavors in doable ways.
1: I don't. There's only uh, maybe one recipe in the book or possibly two that are complicated and rather laborious, and they're worth it. But everything else is um,
0: almost a la minute, because that's how I like to cook these days. And were there challenges in terms of getting some of the ingredients? When you even say rye flour, my husband makes all of our bread at home, and he always has to uh, really search for the rye flour. So would you say that most of the ingredients, if you wanted to cook your way through this book, which I definitely want to do, <laughs> uh, there the ingredients are... Pretty readily
1: available. Almost all of them are. I mean, I live in the Berkshires, and we have a, it's a grocery wasteland there, <laughs> so that is hard for me. I hate the idea of mail ordering ingredients; it goes against the grain. But uh, you can mail order
0: things, or in New York, you'll be able to find just about everything. What would you say would be your legacy recipe? You mentioned quite a few. It could be the kulabiak. It could be your grandmother's rugala. It could be your mother's. Cabbage rolls, but maybe there's something of your very own you'd like to share. There
1: is. And uh, tell me if you need something that is not liquid.
0: I <laughs> know <Because laughs> it can be I liquid. I can pair
1: something with the liquid. But honestly, whenever I serve this to people, I serve it all the time. People are just, I have to drink more. I have to drink more. <laughs> and that is my house infused horseradish vodka. Oh. And it fabulous. couldn't be simpler. You just take a bottle of good quality, so you can use uh, Stelichnaya or you can use Russian Standard. You can use Tito's. It doesn't have to be Russian. But take a seven hundred fifty milliliter bottle, uh, pour it out into another container that has a, a, a not such a narrow neck, and to that add um, about two and a half or three ounces of fresh peeled horseradish that you've cut into a few chunks. Drop the horseradish into the vodka and let it infuse at room temperature covered for 12 hours, uh, 24, uh, well, usually 24 to 48 hours. It depends on how potent the horseradish is. If it turns out it's not that strong, you might want it to go longer You have to keep sipping it, don't you? Well, you just take a little (laughs) spoonful and taste it and see if it's where you want it. Then take the horseradish out, um, put it through a funnel back into the original bottle, stick it in the freezer, and it's truly divine. And you can play with it. You could add a little dill if you want. You could add a little bit of lemon zest. You could add a little bit of garlic. I like mine. I'm sort of a purist, so I like it straight.
0: And you serve a little zakuski with this? These I do. These are Russian tapas, I think. Yes. It,
1: yeah. And one of the easiest recipes in the book is also a go-to recipe is just for 20-minute pickles. So fermenting is really big in Russia and all these fermented foods because it was a way to keep the harvest and have things to eat throughout the long winter. Uh, These pickles are made in 20 minutes. Incredible. You just take uh, three of the little Persian cucumbers, you know, the mini ones, cut each one into quarters, put it into a Ziploc bag, add, (laughs) I know, (laughs) modern (laughs) life. That recipe is going to sell this book. That's wonderful. The Russians weren't doing that back in the 12th century. (laughs) But um, you add, uh, I don't know, three or four cloves of garlic that you've minced, about two tablespoons of minced fresh dill, three quarters of a teaspoon of salt, and most important of all, one tablespoon of vodka. And you put it into the bag, seal the bag, sort of massage it, just so that the garlic and dill and salt are distributed. Leave it on the counter for 20 minutes. Put it in the refrigerator to chill for 20 minutes, and you have amazing pickles. And this goes with the vodka? It goes brilliantly with the vodka,
0: and you don't have that
1: vinegary taste that other pickles have.
0: Darren, that sounds so delicious. (laughs) A very quick question. Um, I go to a restaurant called the Russian Samovar a lot, and um, it's in the theater district. And they don't have it anymore because I believe we were told it's not legal they can't have it but there was a flavored vodka they have maybe 20 different kinds but it was made with the uh, buffalo grass yes. do you know anything about that
1: yeah um so that tends to be more in the south of russia because it's a a a native grass that uh it's the zubrovka that grows in the steppe and it has a really um vegetal herbal smell And they say it's not legal anymore? Yeah. Or they just can't get it. I'm not sure. Oh, let me see what I can do for you, Yeah, I've been really curious about that. Okay.
0: (laughs) That would be really helpful. I love that, too. So many people are are in love with the food world, and it's one of the reasons we're doing this show, because – It has so many facets, and when I asked you how you wanted to ID yourself, I mean, professor, food writer, magazine editor, but you've also been a consultant. This has also led you to consult for the Russian Tea Room and also that wonderful Russian restaurant in New York called Firebird. So what do you impart consciously to your daughter?
1: My daughter is so wonderful. I used to—she just turned 29. I used to worry— because she seemed to have turned her back on the kitchen. I mean, she would make chocolate chip cookies or she'd make a few cupcakes, but mostly she didn't want to be in there. And I realized that was me being probably controlling (laughs) her, claiming it too much as my space. But, uh, you know, she went off to college and then she lived abroad for seven years. And she came back one summer. What was the year that... uh, julie and julia came out the film Mm. it was four years ago or so not that long ago and she was home for a few weeks and we all went to see the movie which i didn't love um maybe because i had known julia but she adored it and she came home and she said i'm taking over (laughs) (laughs) And she took out my mother's copy of Mastering the Art of French Cooking. And she created menus starting on Friday night, Saturday morning, Saturday night, Sunday morning. Very complicated things. And she just went and she made them all. And she made them brilliantly. Because, and I said, where did this come from? I didn't know you could cook. And she just looked at me. Mom, I've been observing you. So even though I didn't work with her so much in the kitchen, she was there with me. And now she's an absolutely brilliant baker, which is what she loves. I mean, she's a great cook, but she loves to bake. And uh, yeah, so I think that it's possible to transmit things uh, if you feel love for something, even if it's not completely apparent
0: as you're doing it. Mothers beware. Right? In the in the best way possible. You're being watched? Yes. Dara, one question I ask all my guests. What does one-woman kitchen mean to you? I hadn't thought about that. Based on what I
1: just told you about uh, having a kitchen where I thought my daughter had been excluded, and you think of one, and one is single and kind of exclusionary, That might have been my initial response, like it's my kitchen. But then if I think about what I do in my life and I think about how wide-ranging our conversation was, I actually think that one is the starting point, that one is the place where it begins, but one only becomes meaningful when it becomes two or when it becomes more. It's the beginning, And it's definitely not the end. It's Genesis.
0: (laughs) That's what's coming to mind when you speak, to, like the divine spark. Yeah. Wow, so beautiful. Dara, thank you so much. Good luck with Beyond the North Wind. I know it's just coming out now. It's so exciting to be able to talk to you about it as it's starting its journey. Thank you, Dara, and thanks to all of you for listening to Dara and Me. In my kitchen, I'm Roseanne Gold. One Woman Kitchen is produced by Mouth Media Network. Follow me on Instagram at Roseanne Gold and check out everything I'm up to on my website at RoseanneGold.com. Thank you for listening. This is Mouth Media Network. Amplify and connect.